we're delighted uh, tonight to have the two co-authors of this new book, Inside Al-Shabaab, The Secret History of Al-Qaeda's Most Powerful Ally, with us tonight. And it's a special pleasure as a veteran of the Voice of America to have two current VOA people with us. And those are the co-authors, Harun Marouf and uh, Dan Joseph. Arun will be giving the talk tonight, and then Dan will join us up at the podium here for the Q&A. Now, uh, Arun Marouf is a reporter and writer at the Africa Division. Uh, he's covered a number of conflict zones, but has become particularly expert in Somali, Somalia. Uh, and has done extensive research on the origins of al-Shabaab, its contacts with al-Qaeda, uh, its history, its current status, and its prospective future. I'm just going to read quickly from one of the blurbs on the back of the book to give you some idea of what has been achieved in it. Quote, this book reveals insights I've never seen during my 15 years in counterterrorism and excellent work. Clinton Watts, senior fellow, uh, Foreign Policy Research Institute. Jam Berger, Inside Al-Shabaab, is the definitive history of the Somali militant group, rich with new, newly disclosed details about the group's genesis and its ties to Al-Qaeda. The only other thing I'm going to read from the back of the book is its price, $28. But at a special Westminster discount, it's available at the table outside for $20. And I know that uh, Haroon and Dan will be happy to sign the book for you after the presentation. I'll just uh, briefly mention that uh, Maruf is the author of hundreds of articles and papers and scholarly works about Somalia and the Horn of Africa. Prior to VOA, he worked at the BBC and Associated Press as a reporter in Somalia and a researcher for Human Rights Watch. One extremely significant thing about his, thing about his influence in the Horn of Africa today is the size of his Twitter audience, which is 100 and... 30,000, 170,000 followers on Twitter. So without further ado, I welcome Haroon Marouf to the podium. Thank you, Robert. Thank you very much for inviting us. It's very nice of you and very kind of you. And uh, as a VOA employee, I'm honored to appear here not just for myself, but also along with my colleagues, Dan Joseph. Dan is a brilliant colleague. Uh, VOA has given us the uh, permission to write this book, and they have supported us. Uh, they've given us also the space, not only to write this book, but also to collaborate on a number of stories, which you can see on our website. Uh, we actually collaborated so many stories about the Horn of Africa and Somalia, Dan and I, for uh, for a long time, and uh, we would joke about writing together sometime one day. And uh, in early 2015, uh, we looked at each other and we said, I think it's the right time to write about Al Shabaab. 
And uh, the rest was, was history. So this book is a, a complete collaboration between me and Dan Joseph. And uh, uh, Dan, thank you very much for working with me and in producing this work. Uh, I think I would like also to say before I start that we are here representing ourselves. Uh, we're not speaking on behalf of Voice of America. Um, I would like to uh, talk about Al-Shabaab, the origins of the group, and why the group is so deadly today. But before I start talking about Al-Shabaab, I would like to mention the country we're talking about is Somalia. Somalia has been without a country for 30 years, almost 30 years. Um, when a country becomes lawless and stateless, um, the government collapses. You can understand the number of organizations that have come to Somalia to support. These were not just uh, Western organizations, but also Muslim organizations, charities. And there is a history of charities working in Somalia. They have been helping Somali uh, people with food, with schools, with education. Uh, and a number of Muslim charities came to Somalia, including Saudi charities, including uh, uh, UAE charities. Charities from all over Muslim countries have been to Somalia to support Somalis with education, scholarship, and they have been doing great job. So when we talk about Al-Shabaab, we always have to have in mind that there are a number of Muslim organizations that are working in Somalia and are doing diligent job. We also have to understand that because of the lawlessness in Somalia, many people have tried to reason why they are suffering for such a long time. Somalis have tried socialism, they have tried being allied with the West. Nothing has worked. Uh, they have not been able to have a functioning government for almost 30 years. So a lot of people went to mosques. A lot of people have sought support from Muslim charities. And a lot of people have become very religious. They were trying to find, understand the reason they are suffering for such a long time. Um, so what I call civil Islam, number of organizations that practice civil Islam have done an amazing job in Somalia. If we understand uh, the rise of Islamic courts in Somalia, they have been able to stabilize parts of Mogadishu and parts of the country. Eventually, it led to the takeover of the south, of the south central Somalia in 2006. Uh, so it's against that backdrop that Al-Shabaab emerged. Um, our book um, starts with the stories of two men. One is Ibrahim Haji Jama' Mi'ad. The other one is a young Somali fighter. His name is Asad Yere. Ibrahim Haji Jama' Mi'ad came to the United States in 1981 as a student. He lived in the United States until 1988. He met a Palestinian jihadist by the name Abdullah Azam, who convinced him when he met him in Virginia to go to Afghanistan and fight alongside the Mujahideen. 
Ibrahim Afghan traveled to Afghanistan. He helped fight against the, the Soviet Union. And in return, Al-Qaeda mentored him. They trained him and they convinced him to go to Somalia and do the same thing. Take the Al-Qaeda ideology and philosophy to Somalia. He came back to Somalia in 1990 and he set up the first jihadist training camp. Um, you might ask yourself, were there any jihadists at that time in Somalia? Yes, and I'm going to explain to you how that came. Somalis are 100% Sunni Muslim. Uh, for centuries, the vast majority of people have followed the Sufi order. But in late 1960s, large number of scholars returned from Egypt, from Sudan, and from Saudi Arabia. And they have challenged the role of the Sufis in the society. Because the Sufis were more or less, they were participating in the government, they were more or less interested in conducting education, preaching, spirituality. What they were not able to do is explain the role of religion in politics. They were not able to explain the relationship between the public and the government, and the government and the citizens. So the scholars who returned from these countries, Egypt, Sudan, Saudi Arabia, they challenged the Sufi orders. They ridiculed them. And from there on, in, 1990s, in 1969, a Salafist network emerged in northern Somalia, today's Somaliland. Four years later, in 1973, another Salafist network emerged in Mogadishu. These two organizations have collaborated. They have exchanged books. They brought teachers from Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and they've spread Salafism uh, throughout the country. They targeted university students, the military, civil servants, and they have succeeded. In 1983, these two organizations merged and they formed an organization called, you might have heard this organization, Al-Itihad Al-Islam. It's an organization being uh, blacklisted by the United States. It's now defunct, but it helped the emergence of Al-Shabaab. How? In 1996, Ethiopia sent troops into Somalia, the southwestern region of Kedo, because that's where Al-Ittihad was training its militias. That's where Al-Ittihad, the gentleman I told you, Ibrahim Afghan and others, were training Somali jihadists. They were not only training jihadists, but they also brought Al-Qaeda figures from Afghanistan, including Saif al-Adi, you may have heard. The current deputy leader of Al-Qaeda was in Somalia in 1993. Hassan Saib was in Somalia. Sheikh Yusuf al-Uyeri was in Somalia. They mentored Somali jihadists. They trained them. They brought in explosive experts until Somali jihadists at that time. I'm going to call them Somali jihadists because Al-Shabaab proper emerged in 2006. 
Although the word al-shabab is not new, it has not been new in the mosques because uh, when young people go to mosques, they, be, they were being described as youth or shabab. So the word is not new, but the organization al-shabab emerged in 2006. So Ethiopia sent troops to dismantle this threat that was coming from Somalia. And that was 1996. And in the following year, Al-Ithad Islam split into two groups. A group largely dominated by scholars who said, we're going to stop violent jihad. We're going, going to go back to preaching. And we're going to, uh, if we want to carry out jihad, we're going to seek fatwa from scholars. We're not going to just trust young fighters to launch jihad as they wish. And another group, including Ibrahim Afghan, who I told you earlier, and other young Somali jihadists who have been going to Afghanistan, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that. They have uh, set up a movement called the New Salaf Jihadists. And this group with a group that was bringing in Al-Qaeda members from Afghanistan, from Egypt, from Sudan, into Somalia. This was the group that were protecting the three men that the United States believed were involved in the attacks in the East Africa embassies. Uh, Harun Fasul, uh, Abu Dalha Sudani, um, and um, I'll remember the other guy. Uh, but three of them, all of them are dead now. Um, two of them were killed by the Somali gunmen and one of them was killed by the United States. So Ibrahim Afghan and was helping young Somali jihadists travel from Somalia to Afghanistan so that they will meet Al-Qaeda, train, come back to Somalia, spread, train more jihadists. Ibrahim Afghan was not just doing that, he was also meeting. I told you earlier that Muslim charities and Muslim countries came to Somalia to offer scholarship to Somali students because the Somali education system collapsed. Among the countries and charities that heavily supported uh, Somali students were charities based in Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. So one of the largest destinations for Somali students was Pakistan. So Ibrahim Afghan will visit universities in Islamabad and Karachi, and he will take them to Bashawar. During the holidays, he will take them across the border into uh, Afghanistan, and they got trained there, mentored, and they became battle-hardened jihadists, and they came back to Somalia um, to lead the formation of Al-Shabaab. The, when 9-11 happened, when the United States attacked Afghanistan, a significant, significant number of these young jihadists came back to Somalia so that they can continue the jihad in Somalia. Al-Qaeda, Hussam bin Laden, Abdullah Azam, Ayman al-Dawahiri, they always saw Somalia and Yemen as the future basis for Al-Qaeda and jihad. Um, so, the emergence of Al-Shabaab in 2006 was not accidental. It was a plan 
help it, nurture it, mentor it by Al-Qaeda to help the emergence of a jihadist group in Somalia. The former leader of Al-Shabaab, Ahmed Abdi was asked who inspired jihad in Somalia, and he named three people, Hussam bin Laden, Ayman al-Dawahiri, and Yahya Alibi, all of them Al-Qaeda ideologues. So, when I say that, I'm not saying that there were not Somali scholars who were not pursuing the idea of jihad and establishing uh, Islamic government in Somalia. Of course, there were Somali scholarly services who always wanted that. But Al-Qaeda has given this group an organization, uh, mentorship, finance, sophistication, techniques, and they became the deadliest group we call today Al-Shabaab. So what's Al-Shabaab? Al-Shabaab is an extremist organization, an Al-Qaeda ally. They officially merged with Al-Qaeda in 2012. But I also told you that there's another person involved in the story, the story of the young man by the name Asad Yere. He represents the other version, the other face of Al-Shabaab. There are genuinely, there are significant number of Al-Shabaab supporters who support Al-Shabaab because they believe that Somalia is under attack from Christian countries. Ethiopia, Uganda, Kenya, with the support of the United States and the West. This young man was a student in Mogadishu in 2006. He was mesmerized by the victory after victory that Islamic courts were gaining against the warlords. And he finally joined them. His brother was killed. That was the last he strove. He was trained as a fighter. He wanted to die as a jihadist. He wanted to defend Somalia against warlords, against Ethiopia. He was only less than 20, but he was a very well-trained jihadist who within one week he would carry out assassinations, he would ambush Ethiopian troops, he would transport logistics, weapons, explosives for Al-Shabaab from one place to another. When the Somali government that was recognized and supported by the United States international community and the Islamic courts reached an agreement in 2009. Uh, a, a significant number of fighters defected Al-Shabaab to join with the new government. He was one of them. He defected Al-Shabaab. He became a bodyguard for a minister. But that was not enough for him. He wanted something different. He was attending a school Early on, before he joined Al-Shabaab in Somalia, he wanted to go abroad. He wanted to go to Bangladesh to study. He was very ambitious. On the other hand, he was, uh, he had blood on his hands. So he left the minister. He tried to go out, uh, outside Somalia. He went to South Africa. He went to Kenya. Every place he goes, he could not adapt life to. So he came back to Mogadishu. And in 2010, 
He hid in a vehicle belonging to the African Union troops in Somalia. He entered the presidential palace and he carried out the first attack in the presidential palace. I interviewed him before, while before he committed this act. I was conducting, doing a program about youth and war. So a friend told me that this young man defected from Al-Shabaab and he has a story to tell to the audience. So I interviewed him, I had a long interview with him. He was very intelligent, but he was also lost. He believed that he was dying for his country and he believed that Al-Shabaab was taking Somalia somewhere, but Al-Shabaab was a dead end. But he represents hundreds, maybe thousands of Somalis who support Al-Shabaab, who believe that Al-Shabaab is the future of Somalia. So these are the two faces of Al-Shabaab. And today's Al-Shabaab, the group we call Al-Shabaab today, they are well-established organization that collects tax, that governs the area they control. Um, they collect taxes not only from the people they control, but also from the areas they do not control. And they have they use all kinds of mechanisms to achieve that. They use Kalan system, they use connections, they infiltrate the system, they obtain information from organizations, businesses, universities, and they tell them this is the number of people who attend university, your university, or this is the amount of goods that you have imported last month. You have to pay either tax, you have to pay support to Al-Shabaab, they also tax vehicles that are leaving Mogadishu, that are going through their territory. Al-Shabaab does not control a major city in Somalia, but they control a vast land in the countryside. So vehicles that are traveling from major towns to the regions have to go through Al-Shabaab territory. So they tax, they collect millions. In 2017, a think tank in Mogadishu estimated that they collect about $27 million. But that's not the only income, that's not the only finance that Al-Shabaab is getting. Al-Shabaab uses all other kinds of mechanisms to collect finance from farms, from crops. Um, they also tax people who are cutting trees. You have heard that charcoal is a big business for Al-Shabaab. It has been a big business for a long time. But recently, uh, because Al-Shabaab, they lost all the seaport, all access to seaports, they cannot export charcoal by themselves. And they do not want uh, Somali government or regional governments to benefit from exportation of charcoal. So what they do is they heavily tax on people who are going to the hinterland to cut trees. So that's another way they... Uh, receive income, but they also collect extortion. They call businesses rich people and they threaten them. They threaten them that if they want to survive, if they want to have their business open in peace, they must pay. And the government cannot give protection to these businesses, so businesses are compelled to pay this money. Al-Shabaab has a very large militias the people we spoke to, Dan and I, estimate that about 13,000 men fight for Al-Shabaab. 
about half of that maybe they are what we call jabhat the military they fight in the front, front line against the somali government uh, against african union uh, the rest are either police police they go to town shops they enforce laws they tell people to go and pray they arrest people who do not pay tax they take the implements uh, rulings by their courts they have charges because of the weakness of justice system in somalia if you want to many people if they want to get their property back or their farm back from somebody because the government is weak and cannot implement it, they go to al-shabab just and they ask them to mediate or reach a verdict and al-shabab does this and al-shabab implements they don't even have to go to areas controlled by government they will just send a message or a telephone number and they will tell that person to implement that ruling and it will be done otherwise you're going to lose your life So, Shabab is a very uh, sophisticated bureaucratic organization that controls everybody, every one of them. Um, they have a database for their members. They know their names, the names of their relatives. Uh, if you want to leave Al Shabab area to come to the government, they're going to tell you when are you going to come back. Who do you know? You want to make sure that. they know and they're always psychologically with you even if even if you are not in their territory so that you don't say anything bad about them or you do not uh, undermine their ideology but uh, having said that said that al shabab has been fighting for a long time in somalia 10 years now they have they were able to control in Mogadishu most of Mogadishu in 2009 2010 but they were kicked out in 2011 they lost almost all the major towns in Somalia most of the somalis do not buy their ideology they do not control all all of Somalia and they have not been able to convince somalis to take their ideology all somalis but they are capable of carrying out deadly attacks like the one we saw last year in october which killed about 587 people vast majority of them civilians almost all of them when nothing is happening al shabab is always mobilizing looking for a new way to carry out an attack so sometimes you will see a lull for 3 months 4 months it's not because al shabab is weak it's because they are planning they always borrowing time to plan the next deadliest attack train more fighters they still recruit fighters even though they have 13000 people in one day late last month they recruited about 300 men in just one village um, so some of these are fighters some of them are spies they have got very sophisticated strong uh, spy network that are, that is with the government that's with the within the army that's embedded with almost every sector of the community giving them feeding them with information the good thing is as i said they have not been able to convince all the somali to take their ideology and they have not been able to take of all of somali and they have not been able to offer to the somali government thanks with the help of the international community 
in particular African Union troops. The United States has a very small number of uh, troops, maybe about 500. Less, most of them, they are training Somali force, counterterrorism force. But they also, the United States conducts airstrikes against Al-Shabaab. This year, they conducted about 30 airstrikes. Last year, it was 33. These airstrikes target uh, suspected Al-Shabaab vipers, vehicles that are carrying explosives into the major towns, and officials that are suspected, believe it to be bomb makers. So they can claim, the United States can claim that they have had some success. Many people believe the United States have had some success in taking out number of key individuals within Al-Shabaab, but you cannot contain this kind of ideology by bombing from there. You need a system of governance that's efficient, that's very radical. This is a radical organization that's going very extreme to change people's minds, to convince a human being to kill itself and kill 587 people. So you need a radical approach, radical agenda to defeat them. And the support of the international community for Somalia is non-existent. When I say that there are 20,000, 22,000 troops from African Union, but they have been protecting the government in Mogadishu and other key areas. And Al-Shabaab is controlling uh, the rest of the country. And Al-Shabaab is coming, planning, attacking them, and they are in, the, in, in defense. So this strategy is not working. The government, international community, they have to come up with a different strategy that can defeat Al-Shabaab. But in the meantime, as we speak, Al-Shabaab is in, in, is in a comfort zone. So I'm going to stop there. Thank you very much. Can you address uh, links between uh, RNA, Al-Shabaab and ISIS, communications, any coordination, uh, fighters going back and forth, anything like that? Well, well certainly there's not um, coordination. Uh, ISIS started a movement in about late 2014. They were trying to convince Al-Shabaab to effect effectively leave Al-Qaeda and align themselves with with ISIS, uh, and they made headway. Uh, there were a lot of the the foot soldiers in Al Shabaab who believed that, you know, at the time ISIS was on the rise, and Al Shabaab should shift its allegiance to this new powerful group that had become sort of the brightest star in the jihadist sky. Uh, and the discussions did go up the hierarchy, and at one point in 2015. It was reported that Al-Shabaab was considering making the switch, but Al-Qaeda did reach out in some fashion, and Al-Shabaab, they never pulled the trigger on the switch. And a few months later, the, uh, the leaders decided that not only are we not going to join ISIS, they decided that the people in the group, the, the men in the group who had advocated for that must be purged. And so starting in late 2015, there was, there was a purging. People were hunted down and killed. Some, some men 
turn themselves into the government rather than stay with al-Shabaab. Um, and since then, there have been occasional clashes between... There, there's still a small ISIS faction that's based up in, I guess it's in Putland, yeah. And uh, there have been occasional clashes between them. Um, but really, there, there's no... There's no coordination there's no collaboration whatsoever they are enemies and um, the ISIS threat as ISIS has declined I think it's uh, appeal among al-Shabaab and Somalis in general has declined too but they, they did take over a small town on the coast of uh, Puntland I think in late 2016 and they held it for about a month but uh, they eventually, withdrew and they're they're just sort of you could almost characterize them as an afterthought in Somalia now. Yeah, just want to add that I, ideologically there's not a lot of difference between al-Shabaab and ISIS. Uh, they're both uh, jihadists, they both uh, uh, brutally kill people, they behead and uh, ideologically they're very aligned. Al-Shabaab at one point was very close, as Dan said, was very close to making the switch. But uh, as I, we mentioned it, Al-Shabaab has this affinity, this uh, affection for Al-Qaeda leaders, and they still call uh, the head of Taliban as the Amir of Amir Mu'minin, and they, they, they very much in uh, weekly or so communication uh, with, with, with Al-Qaeda. Uh, but I, ideologically, there's not a lot of really difference between Al-Qaeda, between Al-Shabaab and ISIS. Congratulations of the book. And um, so uh, uh, Al-Shabaab is just like Taliban. And, uh, uh, and also, uh, what, what does it take to uh, build alternative institutions to replace the role of Al-Shabaab in Somalia? And what are the prospects of those uh, institutions being put in place in not a short, a medium term. Um, Al-Shabaab, as we said, they had very close ties with uh, Al-Qaeda and quite a few of the Al-Shabaab founders and early leaders spent time in Afghanistan and were mentored by bin Laden and uh, Zawahiri. And they modeled themselves to a large degree on the Taliban and the degree of control over people's lives that, that the Taliban exercised and the punishments that the Taliban exercised, such as, you know, chopping off somebody's hand if they're accused of, um, of robbery or stoning people to death for adultery or, or public executions for spying, that kind of thing. Um, so they're, they are fairly similar to the Taliban and, um, I guess no, I don't know. I, I don't know if there's a, a back and forth today on that, but there, I think that's the answer. That's 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 absolutely right. Um, they also have other similarities. With Al uh, Taliban is very much very much entrenched in tribal system in Afghanistan. Uh, Al Shabab does the same. They use clan system to their advantage. Uh, they use clan system to recruit people. They call elders and they say we want 100 boys or 300 boys or 500 boys by this date 
they also tell the elders to collect money uh, from the clan elders. That's another way they generate, uh, uh, they, they collect money from ordinary people. Um, they also sometimes Al-Shabaab uh, pretend they are. Uh, just last week, I don't know if you have seen the video Al-Shabaab has published uh, just late last week, they equating, comparing themselves to the former freedom fighters of Somalia, which fought against the British colony um, and Ethiopia. Uh, so Al-Shabaab does this when, in order to take advantage of the people. So there are a lot of similarities. Uh, there they, they change their politics, they do a lot of politicking to manipulate, but their ideology and agenda is... Uh, is, is fringe and the very extreme uh, Al-Qaeda organization. Um, to come to your other uh, question about what can be done to defeat Al-Shabaab, is that? You have uh, other institutions put in place. Yeah. Um, Somalis have the problem that many African countries have, which is there's too much emphasis on politics and who is becoming leader and who is going to rule uh, the next election, Somalia and Somalis have never re-elected a leader. So the person who is elected as a leader only holds office for four years. So the first two years he's adapting to the system and trying to get used to the way. And the, next, the following two years he's campaigning for election, although they have never elected. So not a lot of job is done. What they could have done is really uh, ask the international community to support security branch and justice system and equip the security branches uh, so that they can investigate attacks, they can uh, launch counterterrorism, uh, they can train uh, security branches, blame a lot of people who will go into the society. Because after all, what, what Al-Shabaab is doing is terrorize people. What they did is what the government should have done, which is they deployed hundreds of people who are spies in the government controlled area and they're spying of everybody and every hotel and every movement of an official and then they assassinate and they hunt them down. And the government is in defense waiting for Al-Shabaab to come. This is exactly what the government should do and they need to uh, establish very strong security branches and ask the international community to focus on establishing this security branch no matter who rules. So this is what Somalia needs. It needs less emphasis on politics, more emphasis on uh, counterterrorism and uh, organizations that can fight Al-Shabaab. And I ask a quick support, follow-up question. Uh, well, I'll just shout. <laughs> um, well, the forces have meant, including security forces, meant to counter or go after Al-Shabaab have the moral support among the people of the tribes for these campaigns, for these efforts to be effective and successful. I mean, the Taliban is still quite alive today, and that, that's a challenge. Yeah, it, it's a good question. Um, I was talking about the Islamic courts earlier in 2006, and the Islamic courts, they have changed the mindset very quickly, within six months, they were able to control South Central Somalia. Uh, that's because they emphasize, they were emphasizing on law and order and justice. 
and people felt connection. So the Somali security branch that exists, they do have the support of, 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 the, uh, of, of their elders. But I'm going to give you an example of, uh, for instance, the United States in 2009, I believe, trained about 40 Somali counterterrorism members, 40. They were brought in somewhere in Ohio and they were trained uh, to carry out, to, to conduct counterterrorism operations. And these 40 became 80 and the 80 became 120 and the number grew. Today, the Somali counterterrorism unit within the National Intelligence Service is very effective. Al-Shabaab attacks hotels, take us over momentarily, but they have not been able to hold longer hours. Uh, for instance, the attack that took place last week in Mogadishu, you have had terrible bombings and then number of uh, attackers immediately uh, got off the uh, vehicle and they tried to storm a hotel. They were shot by security forces who acted uh, very quickly. So this thing can be done, but it needs the support, not only the clients, but it needs the support of the government. And one other as to aspect to that is fight corruption, because uh, Al-Shabaab is exploiting uh, corruption. They're bribing security brides, they're bribing uh, individuals to get information, to access key installations. So the task is, is monumental. Thank you for the talk, it's very interesting. Um, I cover uh, Sub-Saharan Africa as an analyst, and as I step back and look at the continent, uh, the Horn of Africa is undergoing profound change, especially in the past few months, or number of months, rather. Um, just today, you had the uh, lifting of sanctions against Eritrea by the United Nations Security Council. You have a prime minister in Ethiopia who's pushing for very ambitious reforms and reconciliation that has opened up peace with Eritrea and brought peace between Eritrea and Somalia. And so, as these three countries have increased their talks amongst each other in the recent months, it's very interesting that they've been discussing more political and economic integration. I was wondering if, given how Ethiopia has meddled in Somalia for so many years, given its geopolitical imperatives, if you see a potential that this new wave of reform coming from Ethiopia and uh, the reconciliation amongst them could yield a potential for greater stability in the years ahead, uh, greater ties, and potential for just uh, better supply links, et cetera. Um, thank you. I just want to, you mentioned uh, Ethiopia meddled in Somalia for many years. I just want to point out that Eritrea certainly did as well. They. Uh, in the early years of Al-Shabaab, uh, in the in the pre-years, during the Islamic Courts Union period, they were supplying missiles and and things like that. Um, in terms of benefits to Somalia, I would think definitely if if the reforms in Ethiopia last, and if uh, if real uh, economic cooperation is built between Ethiopia and Eritrea and they and Somalia can stabilize to a point where not so much uh, so much money so much effort is being lost 
two corruptions, def, two corruption, definitely Somalia can uh, benefit from, from the, the peace there. Um, it does depend, though, on Somalia taming corruption, getting a functioning government for the first time in, in 30 years, and, uh, and just the establishment of some kind of law and order and peace. Right now, uh, even though conditions have improved to some degree, Ethiopian Airlines did begin flights to uh, Somalia just uh, last week for the first time in 41 years since the uh, 1977 Somali-Ethiopian War. Uh, so, but I think long-term it depends on investors feeling safe that their, their money won't go up in smoke, their people won't be shot down. Um, it, it just kind of depends on Somalia turning the corner and reaching some kind of stability. Multiple First, thank you for the presentation. Uh, what is the end game at the end, at the objective? What's the current strength? And where do you see Al Shabaab in two, five, ten years from now? Um, the, the objective is to restore caliphate in Somalia. That's the objective of Al-Shabaab has been articulated by the former leader of Al-Shabaab, Ahmed Abdi Ghudani, who was trained in Afghanistan. Um, and uh, probably he was the, this, without doubt, he was the man who created and structured and built the organization we call today Al-Shabaab. He was their second leader. Um, so what he said was our objective is to restore caliphate, and he also added on that, he said, an Islamic government is not coming by itself. We have to sacrifice in blood, wealth, and fight against infidels. He ridiculed peace conference that was held for Somali politicians. He said, our ideology is based on Islam, Sharia, and the traditional ruling of Islamic governments. Um, uh, Al-Shabaab is not a democracy. Um, it, it, it loathes democracy. Um, so th their objective is to restore caliphate um, through violent jihad. Um, the other question you asked it was... The current strength. The current... you see them two, five, ten years from the currency strength, I, I, as I mentioned it, Al-Shabaab has uh, about, uh, Al-Shabaab has uh, what they call maktabis. There are seven to two alif, sometimes they merge maktabis. Maktabis are departments or ministers that govern. And the head of maktabis are the executive that run the organization or the ten feet. They also have shura, which is like a parliament which advises the executive. Um, and they are a top-bottom organization. Their orders, guidelines, instructions move very fast. Um, they have 13,000 men who fight for them in all front lines. Uh, they operate like a government. Sometimes you might think they have mechanized brigades because when they are raiding a military base, or a 
belonging to African Union troops or Somali government, they will bring uh, fighters from all over the regions. They will bring suicide bombers. They will bring, <coughs> for all of this, they will collect intelligence. And this intelligence uh, will be collected from the base. And they will probably access the base. They will probably talk to people who are in the base. Uh, they have, they, they're very much part of the society. They're very much entrenched in all sectors of society. And so they get information very easily, numbers where to attack. Um, this information moves to the commanders who plan the attack and then it moves to the Amir and they give final approval. So far they attacked Kenya. They attacked all the countries that sent troops to Somalia, except Djibouti. Um, and Kenya, they, in, in um, um, January 2016, they killed about 140 Kenya troops. They killed uh, the year before 53 Burundian soldiers. Um, they killed 19 Ugandan soldiers when they attacked the Ugandan military base. Um, so they, 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 they attacked an Ethiopian military base. Uh, the Ethiopian military is very strong and they are being trained for counterinsurgents. Um, so in that attack, they failed and about 100 Al Shabaab fighters were killed. But they tried. So, Al Shabab is is a very uh, strong organization. They they, they have got uh, very uh, sophisticated, battle hardened uh, attackers uh, and fighters. In the in the long run, historically in Somalia, uh, Islamic militants, uh, jihadists, they fought against not only African Union troops and Somali government but they also fought against warlords in the early 90s. They fought against Ethiopia. Um, they fought against clans. Each battle they lost, but they always managed to get back up, reorganize, and reemerge. And I think this is a problem not only for Somalia, but uh, it's a problem that exists everywhere in Iraq and Syria. Uh, what do you do? Do you have the time, the finance, the patience, the system on the ground in place to combat this, to commit into long war in, in order to get and finish them off. This is what it needs. Somalia is not unique. So that's what it's going to need to uh, get rid of Al-Shabaab. But in the long run, I, I believe uh, the Al-Shabaab will stay because they are not only strong. The opposition is also very weak. So the government is very sorry. There are a lot of things that are aiding Al-Shabaab to continue to stay for a long time. Okay. Can I just add, add a little something? Uh, the African Union Force, they have more than 20,000 troops in Somalia. And for the last three years or so, they have discussed taking out those troops because they've suffered huge casualties over time. Um, but they're... Their withdrawal plan is predicated on a strong Somali government taking over security. And that has not happened. That has not even begun to happen. And so you asked about the end game. That right now, I don't think there's a realistic end game in sight where Al-Shabaab is defeated and the Somali government takes over and the country finally enters a period of stability. Thank you. Um, First, 
Eastly, how much control does Al Shabaab have over Eastly, Nairobi? And secondly, um, you talked about the restoration of the caliphate. How does that compete or or join with, for instance, Sudan has talked about restoring a caliphate too. How how do those two things work together? Um, the um, sorry, I got very. What was the first question? Eastly. Eastly, okay. Eastly is the Nairobi suburb, which is mainly inhabited by Somalis. Um, so Al Shabaab is, is is present in Kenya. They actually probably they carry out more attacks. Um, they carry out a lot of complex attacks in Somalia. But if you are talking about individual attacks and IED attacks, they probably carry out more attacks in Kenya than in Somalia. And uh, this is because the long border that Kenya shares with Somalia. And this is also because Al-Shabaab recruit the larger number of foreign fighters with Al-Shabaab are from Kenya. Uh, so Al-Shabaab trains uh, Kenyan fighters and send them, sends them back into Kenya. There is a Al-Shabaab unit called Jesh Ayman, or the Mr. Ayman's army. Ayman is the commander of that uh, unit. Uh, they include Somalis as well as Kenyans. And I'm sure you have heard they fight in Borneo Forest in northeastern Kenya, carrying out ambushes against Kenyan military, Kenya police. I mean, the IED attacks against Kenya is almost daily. Uh, you see, uh, you see policemen being killed, military being killed, uh, and they are not attacking now from Somalia. They are very much based in Borneo Forest uh, in Kenya. So they have informers, people who collaborate with them. Uh, in, I'm not saying easily, but I'm sure they have <coughs> Nairobi, number of people who help them. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say easily is a Al-Shabaab stronghold. Easily is like any other Somali inhabited uh, township in East Africa where Al-Shabaab can go um, achieve its objectives, whether it's raising finance or collecting information or recruiting or uh, just to add on to that, there is a scholar who who is one of the well-known scholars uh, in Somalia who is the leading scholar who gives fatwa to Al-Shabaab and uh, he, he lives in Nairobi, <laughs> ironically, and he's not hiding. Um, he is very much um, running his own Mosque. Um, although in the uh, during the last three years or so, his relation with Al Shabaab was not so good because he advised them to join ISIS, and they didn't. He didn't get purged. <laughs> he didn't get purged. So the, the the other question you asked the Caliphate. Caliphate is um, this is an argument that Al Shabaab had Al Shabaab leadership. And they disagreed on uh, whether they can proclaim, announce as a caliphate, or 
give that leadership and decision to Al-Qaeda. So they wrestled on this. This is one of the reasons why they're so close to Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. So eventually they decided to wait decision from Al-Qaeda. So they didn't uh, announce caliphate. They still consider themselves as an emirate of Islamic emirates. Uh, thank you for your talk. I, I wondered if you could talk to uh, uh, Al-Shabaab's standing within the international uh, jihadi community. And what I mean by that is pre-rise of ISIS, uh, when they first pledged allegiance to Al-Qaeda, there was a uh, flurry of foreign fighters who were interested in going there. You know, we, we had a lot of instances of uh, Somali youth from Minneapolis and some other locations trying to travel to Somalia to join Al-Shabaab to fight with that. Uh, but it, it appears at least that since the rise of ISIS, that they their uh, standing has, has dropped a little bit and they've become more of kind of a regional force. I just wonder if you could speak to that. Well, it, it's true they don't seem to get as much support from the United States as they were uh, about 10 years ago. There were a lot of Minneapolis uh, youth and, and men from Baltimore, Chicago, and New York uh, who either went there or tried to go there and, and join the group. Uh, as far as their standing what is, um, at that time, they were conducting conference calls and emails. They were reaching out in that way, and they were successfully uh, finding fundraisers in America as well as fighters. Um, and But you said, have they become more of a regional force? I think it's true that most of their manpower these days comes from within Somalia and Kenya. Um, they, what Harun has been talking about, they're recruiting in, in Somalia and Kenya. Now, a lot of that is forcible recruiting. They, you know, they go into a village and say, you need to hand over this number of kids. Um, I'm not saying they don't get any foreign fighters from Pakistan or, or anywhere else, but yeah, I think most of it is now coming from within the region. They, they have gotten very focused on events in Kenya. Yeah. Kenya and Somalia. They, they did attack, um, they did conduct an attack in Kampala, Uganda in 2010. Um, but uh, I, I don't think they've even tried to do anything outside Somalia or Kenya in the last few years. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So Al-Shabaab is, um, Al-Shabaab has been uh, getting recruits from the United States and the West in 2007, 2006, 2008. Most of these youngsters were going to Somalia to fight against Ethiopian troops, most of them. That's the reason they gave. But when they went there, Al-Shabaab were the organization that was ready, organized, and they had the system to accommodate them initially. Um, but Al-Shabaab had problems with the foreign fighters. Uh, Al-Shabaab we talk about this very strong Al-Shabaab, but Al-Shabaab is also being infiltrated by Western intelligence. So they're very afraid. They, have, uh, they move around their leaders a lot. 
and they were very suspicious of foreign fighters. So they mistreated them. Uh, any foreign fighter who comes, they would put them in a remote training camp, they would confiscate passport, anything, any possession that foreign fighters came with. And um, foreign fighters at one point tried to have their own unit, foreign fighters with Al-Shabaab and former uh, Alabama man, Omar Hamami tried to become head of that group, um, but it, it did not last long. They killed him eventually. Um, just this week, um, they killed an Egyptian in the town of Chilip. Uh, uh, so they don't trust that much foreign fighters. The foreign fighters Al-Shabaab likes today are the foreign fighters, as Dan said, that are coming from the region, Kenya, Tanzania, uh, even Ethiopia, uh, even Burundi. Um, I'm not saying there are not individuals who may travel from Chechnya or Afghanistan or Pakistan to go to Somalia, but uh, Al-Shabaab does not need foreign fighters today. They actually have enough fighters. What's also more interesting is that Al-Shabaab has been using foreign recruits. When they are talking about foreign recruits, they include Somalis who returned from abroad. They consider them as foreign fighters. So what they have been doing with them is they put them in training camp and they use them as suicide attackers because these are young men who came from the West. They are hungry. They are disfranchised with life in Minnesota. So they go back to Somalia and what does Al-Shabaab do? They put them in the front line and they uh, give them suicide fests and immediately while they are fresh and hungry and ready to die, they put them in the front line and many of them committed suicide attacks uh, uh, in Somalia. So Al-Shabaab is not a fan, not a big fan of, uh, of foreign fighters. But internationally, I think they know what they want. They very much consider themselves as an Al-Qaeda ally. They are the strongest <coughs> Al-Qaeda ally today. They control the largest territory of any Al-Qaeda allied group. Uh, they are self-sufficient. They're collecting, they're financing their own operations. Um, they have their own system that's working for them through the community. If they want to recruit, if they want to get finance, if they want to get information, everything is, is, is working for them. What's more important, maybe I should have mentioned it earlier, is that Al-Shabaab, the lady has asked it, what can be done? Al-Shabaab, if you pressure Al-Shabaab, Al-Shabaab walks back when you pressure. That's why they were kicked out in 2011 from Mogadishu. That's why they lost almost every major town in Somalia. So one thing that worked is that when you pressure Al-Shabaab, when you attack their resources, attack their leaders, they withdraw, they pull back, they try to save men. Uh, they try to fight another day. Uh, so this is why you need consistency and system and infrastructure and determination, uh, well-trained soldiers to go after them, fight them in the countryside, uh, recruit a lot of people who can give information about their movements, uh, foil attacks. <laughs> so this is why you need all this uh, work. But Al-Shabaab actually can be defeated and uh, we have seen examples of that. 
if I may, um, what uh, means of communication does Al-Shabaab have with the people in Somalia? Do they have radio stations? Do they produce their own literature? Um, that, that kind of question, number one. Or, or the war of ideas taking place in the mosques, or where, where, what is the battlefield for the war of ideas there? Uh, and number two, uh, substantively, to whom do the Shabab uh, leaders appeal in their literature? As you know, in, in Al-Qaeda or even ISIS, you always have quotations from Sayyid Qutb. So, I mean, are, are the, are the, is, the, is the jihadi literature for Al-Shabaab the standard literature you see throughout the jihadi movement, or do they appeal to other sources? Regarding communication, uh, they have their own media unit, Al-Qatib. Al and uh, they've been producing, they've always done videos, and the videos have gotten increasingly sophisticated over the years and longer. When, uh, when Al-Shabaab attacked um, uh, the Kenyan base, El Adi, in 2016, they filmed it as they were attacking it. And they produced a, a video, several versions, long, medium, and short versions of the, uh, of the attack. And you can see the fighters, that you can see the suicide bombing, the explosion off in the distance, and then the fighters, um, you know, charging into the base. But in, in addition to uh, videos, they've also exploited radio. In 2010, they launched what they called the Ramadan Offensive in Mogadishu. And this was the biggest attempt to overwhelm the government and take full control of the city. The first thing they did was make an announcement on a network of Mogadishu radio stations. It was almost like a, almost a nationwide or almost like a presidential address based, but it was based on violence and, and jihad. Uh, and on the first day of the fighting, they took over a station, I think it was called Radio Holy Quran, and, and that began that became an Al-Shabaab outlet. Um, so they, they are like ISIS and other militant or terrorist groups that they know how to operate the, the modern media and make it work to their advantage. Uh, absolutely right. They have a very uh, sophisticated, well-oiled media machine. Um, they issue very well-edited, high-definition videos, which I'm sure you have seen uh, uh, online. They have journalists <coughs> who are embedded in their Japan, in their fighters, who, as Dan said, record uh, attacks, as they have been. Uh, for instance, one of the attackers who attacked the hotel just last week on Friday uh, was when he was conducting the attack, he was directly communicating with an Al-Shabaab radio and they were recording. So they just published it today, his voice. So this is exactly what they wanted, the, the message they wanted other young fighters to hear. Uh, so they have websites, they have radios, um, um, they have a media office that produces these blockbuster videos about jihad. Um, and, uh, Twitter, 
yeah, they, they, they have been, they have tried to be successful like ISIS on social media, on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, they have tried that, but Twitter was able to confront that and they were not, during the Westgate attack, they were able to live tweet the attack. Um, but as time went on, Twitter was able to shut down uh, their media uh, sites, their accounts. Uh, but they have websites, uh, Al-Shabaab. They are very clever. What they did in Somalia is uh, there's an Al-Shabaab radio called Andalus. That's official Al-Shabaab radio. But they also have two other stations. And uh, just to make sure these two other stations, uh, they try to deceive the community. So they portray themselves as an independent radio stations. So they sometimes call politicians and ask them questions about what do you think he, uh, Al-Shabaab and to just to portray themselves as an independent media. Uh, and um, so unless you know, but their message is always very consistent. They, they, they report jihad, they uh, uh, report Al-Shabaab attacks, uh, speech because uh, what one of the reasons that al-shabaab was targeting media is because uh, they failed to convince local journalists who are dependent to air their message wholly and the local media said this is very inflammatory message we can't air them it's going to incite violence uh, it's not ethical we can't air your videos as they are so al-shabaab targeted them so this is why they established their own media, and their media is very is one of the go-to websites when you wake up in the morning. Uh, uh, and they publish so many information. Uh, what, what they also never forget preaching. So they have a department. Earlier I was talking about maktabis ministers. They have a department called Dawah, and that department what it does is send the preachers to um, preachings, to mosques, to preach. What they also do is, the videos we're talking about now, they screen them every Friday. They screen a story about jihad, whether it's in Somalia or from Afghanistan or from another part of the world. So they have a very strong media organ. There was another question? Sure. Uh to which authorities do they appeal when, they, when they're preaching or <coughs> Yes, they appeal to Salafi scholars. Ibn, Ibn Taymiyyah is the most Taymiyyah. Ibn Taymiyyah is the most prominent. Uh, the Jordanian uh, scholar, uh, Sheikh uh, Baghdashi, uh, uh, I, I can't remember his name, but there are a number of Salafi scholars, all the Salafi scholars. Uh, Ibn Taymiyyah is the most prominent. He always features most of their speech. Is there another question? Uh, first of all, I would like to say uh, thank you for completing this project and giving us that much of uh, data and information to digest. As a Somali, I feel that I knew a lot about Al-Shabaab, but uh, your book keeps surprising me while I'm still reading. Things that I wonder is uh, your source, uh, as we can understand, for the safety risk, 
reasons, some are not you kept to yourself. So how would you double check when you get information someone who used to be a Shabbat or worked closely that uh, you provide in the book? Well, I mean, it, it depends on um, each source individually. There, there are some people that uh, either Haru knew or that I knew, and we felt we could trust them. Uh, some sources for the book, they came from documents, uh, the U.S. diplomatic cables uh, that were released through WikiLeaks. Um, we got information from the U.S. government prosecution of Shabab fundraisers and former fighters. And there was, um, in the indictments, there was uh, a lot of evidence, you know, re recordings of people. And uh, we felt we could trust that. Um, is that... A, I, I just mean that uh, the ones that you didn't provide, like this U.S. cable is you always mention, you, you refer where you get your source, but those uh, that you get inside of Ashabat, people who used to be uh, Afghani, and there are a lot of information that who give it to you, it's only on your side. I mean... The people we quoted about Afghani, some of them have told us their names, including his right-hand man, uh, Abu Ayman, who was a fighter who traveled from Sweden to go to Somalia and fight along Al-Shabaab. Now he's back in Sweden, he's being uh, rehabilitated. So he was the right-hand man of uh, Ibrahim uh, Al-Afghan. We spoke to a um, very close, uh, uh, probably, the one person we spoke to people who were the closest were, the, uh, were Ibrahim Khan. We spoke to people who are very close to him. We cannot name them, uh, but we, we spoke to people who know him uh, uh, in person. But generally, what you do when you get the sources, you, uh, you try to corroborate, speak with other defectors. And what we did was speak with the defectors and we're very lucky to speak with the uh, most high-profile defectors to date so far, including uh, Mukhtar Robo Abu Masur, who was one of the uh, Somali jihadists who were trained in Afghanistan, who uh, before 9-11 happened, it was in Afghanistan. Uh, Ten days before 9-11, he was in a training camp in outside Kandahar, and Hussain uh, Biladin came to him and he, this is the way he was narrating the story. Biladin said, um, something is going to happen in 10 days. We have to <coughs> disperse the fighters. We have to hide somewhere. America is going to come and bomb us. He didn't tell them specifically we're going to attack New York, but he told them, uh, this is Mukhtar Robo, deputy leader of Al-Shabaab. Uh, not only deputy leader, at one point he was the acting emir uh, of Al-Shabaab, a man who never left Somalia apart from going to Afghanistan. The only country he ever went to was Afghanistan. Uh, so we spoke very lucky to spoke to him for the book. We also spoke to Zakaria Ismail Hersi. I'm sure you know him, former intelligence official, one of the people that the United States put three, <coughs> United States put $3 million on his head 
5 million for Robo. So we're very lucky to have spoken both of them for the book. So we corroborated all these uh, sources. And if we could not corroborate a source, we stated that he that that person was the only source for that story. 